Greetings to you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the Sunday School Podcast for October 15th, the 20th Sunday after Pentecost. And today, as we continue our study of 120 Bible stories, we're looking at the sixth story in the series from Genesis 13 and 14, Abram Rescues Lot. Now, if you remember, Abram will eventually be Abraham, but Abram is called from the east, from Ur of the Chaldees, and he is told by God to go to Canaan and that he and his descendants will inherit the land, and there Abraham, or Abram as he's still called right now, will be the father of a great nation. So Abram travels with Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his nephew, to Canaan. Because of a famine, they go down to Egypt for a while. We had that last time as Abram tried to get away with telling Pharaoh that Sarai was his sister, not his wife. Um, Pharaoh eventually finds out because he and his nation are plagued for him taking Sarai as one of his wives. And so Abram and Sarai and Lot are evicted from Egypt and sent back to Canaan. In the meantime, through uh, through Pharaoh's largesse and through their own... Um, through their own work and, and God's blessing, Abram and Lot both have a lot, of, uh, a lot of goods and a lot of livestock as they return to Canaan. And that's where our story picks up. From Genesis 13, verse 1 and following, we read, So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him into the Negev. Now, Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. So, again, this picks up at the end of last week's story. And now Abram and Lot in Canaan have so much stuff and so much livestock that they can't live close to each other. There's not enough pasture for all of their animals. So something has to be done. Now, remember, Abram is the uncle. Lot is the nephew. God has promised the land to Abram and his descendants, not to Lot and his descendants. So Abram, as the heir of the land, really has, and also as as the uncle, as the elder, Abram has every right to say to Lot, I'll choose where I'll live, and you can have the leftovers. But that's not how the story goes. We read in verse 8, Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, 
and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right, or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley and Lot journeyed east. Thus, they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. So Abram gives Lot the choice of where to live. And Lot looks around and sees that the Jordan Valley is, is lush. It's, it's good pasture for livestock. And in fact, here in verse 10 is described as well-watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord. And that's, that's significant. Um, the Jordan Valley looks like the Garden of Eden back before the fall when four rivers watered the land and made it, made it a beautiful garden. So it's, it's on the one hand well-watered like the Garden of Eden. It's also well-watered like the land of Egypt where everybody runs to whenever there's a famine. Um, and so Lot chooses to live down in the Jordan Valley. It's beautiful land, but the text also notes that Lot moves his tent as far as Sodom. That's where the cities are, which means that's where a lot of the Canaanites live. And the Canaanites are not pious, godly people. None of those cities are going to be outstanding when it comes to Christian morality by any means. But we have this note here, especially that Sodom is a wicked place. The men there are great sinners against the Lord. So Lot chooses, we think, the best land, the Jordan Valley. But in this world, the best places can also come with some really, really wicked people. And you can, as you can guess, we'll be talking about the story of Sodom and Gomorrah in one of the weeks to come very soon. A little bit of an interlude that's not in the Bible story textbook, but uh, chapter 13 continues with verse 14. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. And I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. Wherever Abraham goes, in fact, he builds an altar to the Lord because... Um, his, his faith is important, and so that is reflected in his, in his life and, and in his worship. God, once again, here in Genesis 13, 
repeats to Abram the promise that the land is his, that the land is a gift, and that Abram's offspring will be like the dust of the earth. He will have descendants too numerous to count. Once again, remember that Abram and Sarai are in their, what, late 70s, maybe the early 80s by now, and they still don't have a single child. So once again, Abram is living by faith. God says this land will belong to your descendants, even though the Canaanites are still there and don't recognize Abram as the Lord of the land, and they have no children to have descendants as many as the dust of the earth. Nevertheless, God promises, and even though Abraham can see no evidence that God is at work keeping his promise, he still trusts in in what he cannot see. By the way, a quick note here, does God keep his promise? Because he says that he gives this land to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And of course, Israel loses the land, much of it to the Assyrians in the 8th century BC and the rest of the Babylonians in the, what, 6th century BC. So does God keep his promise that he gives it to them forever? And the answer is, yes, he does. And it's a gift. And when God gives gifts, he gives them, but they're, they're not coercive. God doesn't force people to keep the gifts that he gives. He gives Israel the land and says, this land is yours forever, and you can keep it by following me because I will protect you. But Israel chooses instead to turn to false gods and idols and rocks with faces on them. And so God says, well, if you want those dead rocks to protect you, I'll leave you in their hands. And because Israel turns away from God, God who would protect them, God who would preserve them in their land, because Israel turns from God, they lose the land. It's not God who was faithless to his promise. It was Israel that was faithless to God. All right, now we have the part where Abram rescues Lot, starting at the start of of Genesis 14. And here we have a few verses with a lot of names that don't get used very much these days when new babies are born. Starting at verse 1. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, These kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Birsha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years he had served Chedor Laomor, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Chedor Laomor and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Ashtaroth Karnaim, the Zuzim in Han, the Emim in Shava Kiriathaim, and the Horites in their hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. 
Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazon Tamar. So, Chedorleomor is on a roll enforcing his empire. Now we get more specifically to the Jordan Valley and read in verse 8, Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out, and they joined the battle in the valley of Sidim with Chedor Laomor, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goyim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of Elasar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of Bituin pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions, and went their way. All right, so the kings of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zeboim, plus the king of Bela, these five kings go to war against Chedor Laomor, the terror, and his allies, and they are soundly defeated. And we have this little uh, note here that as uh, the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah flee, um, some of their troops and entourage fall into bitumen pits. Um, just a quick note, um, bitumen refers to, what, tar or asphalt, um, and, and oddly enough, the, uh, the Dead Sea or the Salt Sea actually is known to contain chunks of, of asphalt within. So we kind of have an idea of, of, of where, uh, where this battle took place close to the Dead Sea or, or the Salt Sea. Um, some claim that the, the, uh, the asphalt in the Dead Sea is what's left of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's what happens when fire and brimstone um, burn your city to a crisp. But that's... that's as a nice folk tale, it's certainly not um, confirmed by, by scripture or any archaeology besides the chunks of asphalt. The big point of the story is that the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah go to war with their allies against the other team. They lose terribly, and as um, they and their armies and their citizens are taken into captivity... Lot and his family, since they're dwelling in Sodom, they are also taken into captivity. They're being carried off. Verse 13, Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and of Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive... He led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions, and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions, and the women, and the people." All right, so so one escapes from Chedor Laomer's uh, defeat of these troops and comes and tells Abram, who's called Abram the Hebrew. Um, just a quick note here. This is the first time anybody is called a Hebrew in, in Scripture. Um, 
we're not quite sure where the name Hebrew comes from other than the best bet is back in Genesis 11, verse 16. Abram has an ancestor named Eber, and so Hebrew, Hebrew might be, um, it might mean um, one of the descendants of Eber, another name not used much in naming babies these days, or the word Hebrew may come from the, the Hebrew word to wander, as Abram has been wandering from Ur of the Chaldees to Canaan, to Egypt, and back to Canaan again. At any rate, Abram, the Hebrew, here's the defeat, and that Lot and his household have been taken captive. Abram then leads forth his trained men. They're described as 318 strong, and they're the ones born in his house, which is, on the one hand, a pretty big number to be built to be born within one household. Abram has no kids. These are the uh, these are the sons of, of his of his servants and, and workers within the um, the household of Abraham, which is huge with lots of livestock and silver and gold. Remember, and so it's it's really pretty gives us kind of an idea of how big Abram's household and holdings are. That we have 318, 318 soldiers born in his house as his trained men. They're not probably just soldiers, but nevertheless, when he calls them to muster up for arms, he's got 318, 318 troops to, to, uh, to pursue. On the other hand, when you're up against four kings, including the scourge of the land, Chedor Laomer, 318 isn't a whole lot of men. We don't know how big Chedor Leomer's army is, but if it's divided among four kings, unless they have fewer than, let me do the math here, about 80 troops apiece, then Abraham, Abram is going to be seriously outnumbered with his 318. We don't have a long um, description of the battle, but we know that Abram divides his forces against them by night and he defeats them, pursues them to the north of Damascus. Then he brings back the possessions, his kinsmen, Lot and his whole household, along with the women and all the people of Sodom and Gomorrah and the other defeated kings. Now, 318... At night might ring a bell because later on in the book of Judges, Gideon will defeat the Midianites, a vast army that looks like like, um, a locust swarm. He'll defeat them with 300 men at night. And so we have kind of a, um, a theme of pitched battles within the Old Testament, right? So you, you have here Abram and his 318 versus the, uh, the, these four kings. You have Gideon and the brave 300 against the Midianites. Moses versus Pharaoh is kind of a pitched battle that Moses should lose. 
David versus Goliath is kind of underdog versus the literal giant. Time and time again, you get these pitched battles where the underdog should lose, should get his clock cleaned, but he wins. He wins because the Lord is with him, because the Lord is at work keeping his promises, and the Lord is at work keeping his promises for your salvation. All right, so the battle is won, and we read in verse 17, After his, after Abram's return from the defeat of Chedor Laomer, and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought up bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshkel, and Mamre take their share. So after his victory, Abram is met by two kings. The king of Sodom we've heard about before, and from the sound of the end of this text, I think I had it wrong before. The king of Sodom escapes being captured, so now that Abram's won back his people for him, he goes back to Abram and says, can I at least have my people back? You keep the goods, I'll take the people and we'll rebuild from there. And Abram refuses to take anything from the king of Sodom. Remember, um, Sodom is full of wicked men, very wicked, who rebel against God. And, 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 and the scriptures make that clear already. And Abram refuses to be enriched by the king of Sodom and by that wicked city. He has God's promise that the land of Canaan is his. He has God's promise that he will have offspring like the dust. And he already has God's blessings with, with, um, with flocks and herds and silver and gold and a huge household. And when he takes 318 men against four kings, he wins. So rather than profit from the wicked king of Sodom, so the king of Sodom can say, hey, I made Abram rich. Abram refuses to receive any loot from the victory and instead relies, continues to rely solely on, on God's blessings and makes clear to all by doing so that it is God who is responsible for his possessions and for his victory over those four kings. So, we say goodbye to the king of Sodom for now. The far more interesting character is, is Melchizedek, king of Salem, appears. 
Now, we don't hear of Melchizedek, king of Salem, before this. Um, and we won't hear of him again in the Old Testament after this. It's like he pops up out of nowhere and greets Abram. Melchizedek is called king of Salem, which could be Jerusalem. And he's identified as both king and priest of God Most High. So Melchizedek is a believer in the one true God. And Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brings out bread and wine, blesses Abraham, and apparently feeds him bread and wine. And Abram responds by giving Melchizedek a tenth of everything. Now, why is Abram giving the king of Salem a tenth of everything, everything that he has if Melchizedek is simply one more king? Because he would be like the tenth king in this chapter alone. Well, it, it may very well be that Melchizedek is the king of Jerusalem and a priest of God Most High. And since he is a priest of God Most High, he conducts sacrifices to God. And so Abram, in worship of the one true God, gives to this king and priest a tenth of everything since Melchizedek is kind of God's representative. It's also possible that Melchizedek is not the king of Jerusalem. By the way, the name Melchizedek means my king is righteousness. Melchi, my king, Zedek is righteousness. And the word Salem means peace. Um, Salem, the name comes from the same Hebrew word as shalom, peace. All right. So it may be that Melchizedek is not the king of Jerusalem, but this is in fact... Jesus before the incarnation, who is the king of righteousness and the king of peace, and is our high priest who makes a sacrifice for our sins. So long, if that's the case, long before Jesus is born of Mary, he appears after this victory to Abraham as further assurance that God is at work to keep his promises. First, God has given Abram his word, his promise that he will have many offspring and one of them will be the Savior. And now he shows up in this case to assure Abram with a blessing and with bread and wine. So, either Melchizedek is a type of Christ who will come, who blesses his people with words and bread and wine, or else Melchizedek, this mysterious guy who pops up for a couple of verses in Genesis 14, perhaps he is Jesus before the incarnation who blesses his people with a blessing of words and bread and wine. And if it is in fact Jesus before his incarnation who has appeared to Abram, then no wonder Abram gives him a tenth of everything. So Melchizedek is kind of this mystery figure who shows up at the end of the battle. He appears 
He blesses Abram, gives him bread and wine, and then he disappears. And he is really the highlight of the story. I mean, Abram's victory over the the, uh, armies of Chedor Leomer and his allies is pretty fantastic. But that's not what gets recalled in the New Testament. We have in Hebrews 7, verses 1 through 3, this little note. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. So, Hebrews kind of teases us too, saying, so this Melchizedek pops up out of nowhere without a genealogy, no description of his parents, so we don't know anything about where he came from. And he disappears, so we hear nothing about the rest of his life or his death, so it's like he's eternal. He's always there, always being king and high priest. Now, we might just have Melchizedek mentioned without past or future mention, so he points to Christ all the more, or else he might resemble Christ so much in the story that he is, in fact, Jesus before his incarnation. Anyways, when we get to how this story points to Christ, you kind of see it already, right? First off, Abram is a type of Christ, although he is Lot's elder, and he could just direct Lot to take the second portion of the land while he takes the best, Abram desires to make peace with his kinsmen, and so he sacrifices the good land for Lot's sake. Even if Lot makes a mess of the whole thing afterwards, Abram still makes peace with Lot and gives him the best that there is. And so Christ sacrifices himself, his life, his blood, that we might have the kingdom of heaven, which is not just like the garden of the Lord, but heaven is in fact paradise restored. Abram is also a type of Christ in the story because he's the underdog in the battle. He and his 318 men take on four kings and, and, and an army that's held um, other kingdoms in bondage as an empire for quite a while, and he triumphs over them, defeats them soundly. I like how Hebrews calls it the slaughter of the kings. So Abram, as the underdog, defeats a far greater foe, just like Gideon defeats Midianites with his 300, just like Moses defeats Pharaoh, just like um, um, David defeats Goliath, and all of these characters and all these battles point to Christ. Because Christ appears to be just one more human being, so up against the enemies of sin and devil and certainly death, Jesus looks like the underdog. 
when he dies, when he's buried, there should be no chance of him, of him coming out the victor, the conqueror. But so he does. He defeats the unbeatable enemies, does Jesus, for our sake. And, and his underdog victory, if you will, is, is, is foreshadowed by Abram's victory over Chedor Leomor and all of his all of his allied kings. And finally, this story points to Jesus with Melchizedek, this king without beginning or end, who's also a high priest, who comes and blesses Abram with words and bread and wine to reinforce to Abram that um that God keeps his promises. And Christ, of course, is your king, who is also your high priest, who has made the sacrifice for your sins and still blesses you by his word, reminds you of his promises, and gives you himself, his body and blood, in with and under bread and wine for your salvation. So whatever the battles or troubles of this world, you know that Christ who defeated the, the unbeatable enemies of sin, death, and devil, he shares that victory with you in his word and sacraments until he delivers you to paradise too. All right, that's a quick look at the story of Genesis 13 and 14 where Abram rescues Lot. God grants you every good gift as you continue to meditate upon this text. God grants you every blessing if you're teaching this to others. And until we speak again, the Lord order your days and your deeds in his peace. Amen.